you for listening to the Game of Football podcast. I am your host, John Collins, and today's is the second part of our football and political extremism series. In the first part, we dealt with fascism, and in this episode, we'll be looking at how communist states have used and abused football through the ages. And to do that, I am joined by Alan Hick. Uh, Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm not bad. Um, And quite looking forward to doing this one. The first part got some nice... uh, nice feedback and it is still available so we look at everything from how fascist Italy and Nazi Germany right up through to the modern day used football. Now we're going to talk about how communism and football interacted and to do that we start in a fairly obvious place which is Soviet Russia. Yes um, I mean it would be remiss of us not to sort of like just look at the kind of extreme right and then not look at the extreme left. I, mean, I think before we even get going, it's probably it's probably important to kind of just mention that. I mean, when, when we talk about those political extremes, uh, in, in 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 a lot of ways, you kind of think of them as being very far removed from one another, from one another in the sort of forms of kind of the furthest right wing. You kind of think of uh, one one party leadership with kind of dictatorial control, kind of everyone. Um, but then the reality is that the further to those extremes that you get, actually, the more often they actually turn into something that's quite similar. So in both kind of states, you'll see, you, te- you yeah, and they actually tend towards dictatorships. They tend towards uh, methods of control through censorship and propaganda, um, and in some cases, virgin to, to, to forms of terror. Um, and football be- becomes another kind of like means through which uh, that is sometimes used by some of these states. So a lot of the things that we'll talk about um, today kind of mirror, I think, a lot of a lot of things that happened in kind of some of those fascist states and the techniques are sort of similar. Um, I think there's there's some there's some interesting you kind of like slightly more unique things that, that happen in both. I think you can explain some things for. I mean, I, I suppose one of the things that slightly surprises me initially when we're talking about Soviet Russia is that we tend to think of football as being a working class sport. So in a certain sense, the idea that um, football would be something that a communist state would use seems like probably the most obvious thing to say. But when the kind of ideals of the revolution are kind of brought in, um, Lenin and uh, some of the other Bolshevik leaders sort of, I think, were initially kind of quite sceptical of, of of football, and p- possibly that it's more that more that it's it's used or it, it well, it, its home is England, obviously, um, which is uh, a, you know an, an openly anti-communist kind of country um, at this time, and so and so probably is a lot a lot are a lot of the Western European countries where football is also thriving. So there's probably this suspicion that. Um, it has a kind of a bourgeois middle class element to it, um, so 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 there's an, there's an early degree of, of skepticism to it, but it, it, that, that that doesn't stop them in the end trying to to, to utilize it for their own kind of purposes. But in in the same way as Hitler had very little interest in in football, Lenin and later Stalin didn't really have a huge kind of following for it um, either. Um, it's interesting, but, but, there, but there is this awareness to. Of, it, of its potential, I think. Yeah, and again, I think that background's really important of the fact that football is... Actually, football exists in a lot of forms, but football as an organised sport in England is still relatively new. 
you know, you're talking about within living memory of the first kind of codified rule book by the time you get to the Russian Revolution in 1917, you've still got football spreading around the world and England is the home of... It is the English game. Um, and it's hard not to ignore the fact that initially there doesn't seem to be very much state control of football, state interest in football. As you say, it's more suspicion that it is bourgeois and probably worth explaining what bourgeois means in this context as well. Uh, well, I, I, yeah, I suppose that's kind of... If the bourgeoisie we kind of we associate with being the people that the proletariat the working classes are kind of rebelling against the, the former kind of uh, the ruling classes if you like um we sort of sometimes sort of talk of them as being middle class but i think it, strictly in marxist terms you you talk about the bourgeoisie as being the, the the people in charge who kind of exploit the proletariat for their own for their own good um but i, th- I think one of the one of the interesting things is about uh, the the idea of uh, of a class culture that you're kind of trying to create, and one of the things that that the proletarian revolution has a problem with is that because, because the proletariat has supposedly been ex- exploited by its bourgeois uh, superiors, they've also not really been the, the creators of culture in all sorts of in all sorts of ways. So you know the the great kind of like. Yeah, literary figures like Tolstoy, the classical, um, the classical musicians and composers that Russia is incredibly famous for, the Bolshoi Ballet, all, all of these things are kind of bourgeois products. And in that sense, the the kind of like decision of what you're going to do with your country is quite a, is quite a potentially in- interesting one. And, and you know, within arts, there is an attempt to there's something 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 that's literally called prolet cult which was brought in um in the early part of the revolution to in an attempt to create a proletarian culture with uh certain new forms of arts the 1920s are quite like famous for bringing in uh kind of new stars of art new sorts of things that you link with someone like pablo picasso for instance and and football has this potential as well not least because russia kind of has its revolution in marxist terms before it's supposed to mm-hmm. um the, the the communist revolution should is designed and it's written for western very developed european countries that have gone through industrialization the issue that russia has is it's still got a peasantry that's about three quarters of its population so the sense of there being a proletarian revolution isn't really happening yet and, and the, the point of bringing that in is that, that's potentially quite interesting for football is that that makes it potentially more difficult to, to bring in an influence but on the flip side of that there is there is the element that that russia is much much less educated than than lots of other parts of europe if you talk about the literacy rates of uh, of russia compared to western europe you're talking about 30 odd percent in about the early 1917 uh, sorry it, it, you know beginning of the revolution who can who can read and write so in that sense things like art things like football have an ability to convey a message that that written word doesn't and um and and there's potential for for, for football to be used in that sense um and, and I, I would argue that they don't do it as well as they could um and i i think that's something that fascist states do better mm. um in terms of their use of football but i that, that's my kind of like claim at the beginning of this and we can kind of judge that at the end but that's that's where I that's my initial thinking on it. I think that's really interesting because one of the things that I think marks out 
um, communist states' involvement in football. Excuse is, the pun. <laughs> is oh so unintended, but <laughs> um, I'm trying to get an Engels one in there, and I can't think of one. Um, but the fact that you seem so much that although both communist and fascist states can be often riven by the personalities that come to the control room. You talked about how you have that element of terror and so much of that comes around cult of personality or power of individuals. It seems particularly that communist states seem to subject football to those internal divisions a lot more. And the way in which, for example, you look at the way the Moscow clubs um, are all sort of associated with branches of the state, not the state as a whole, but elements of the state. And that's something which doesn't seem... It almost pits elements of the state against one another in the way that they take control of and come to be represented by those clubs. In a way that fascist states are much more interested in the national team by every experience that we went through last time, or or ways that a club side could become to represent the nation. That's less of a concern. It seems to be much more internal-based. That was my reading of anyway, particularly the way those clubs across, not just the Soviet Union, but as we talk about later, the kind of um, the whole Eastern Bloc, you do get a certain kind of... um, Well, if you hear Dynamo before a team, there's a really, really, really high probability that there's been some kind of secret police connection mm-hmm. to that club. Yeah, indeed. Um, it, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that. I, I mean, I think f- before we go to, into those four those four clubs that, that, that's so central, I, I, su- I suppose it must be the fact that that the, the, the sort of communist revolution was trying to distance itself from the Western world. And so in, engagement with it was 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 less often it it does happen in the sort of post kind of world war Two era um in terms of like comp- competing in world cups and olympic games and those sorts of things but um i, I think a lot a lot of their, their policies are very internal it's about kind of establishing communist rule it's still it's still in its infancy there is a a, a powerful kind of attempt to to counter it with civil wars and those kind of things so um Perhaps that makes sense, but but as you say, the, the four main clubs in Moscow are where are where most of the kind of like attempts to to influence football come from. CDA CDKA are effectively run by the Red Army. Um, Torpedo Moscow run by the Zil City Car Plants Locomotive, as it sounds like, run by the Railway Ministry. And as you say, Dynamo Moscow, uh, like Dynamo Berlin later, uh, Dynamo Moscow con- controlled by the secret police um, known as the Cheka. Uh, up until some point in the 1920s, I've forgotten when, but it later turns into the KGB uh, and and the NKVD later. Um, and, I, and really, as I, as we said earlier, it wasn't it wasn't so much Stalin who took a great interest. It was Lavrenti Beria. Um, he, uh, for anyone who's seen Death of Stalin, he's <laughs> the one who who meets his death in rather un compromising circumstances towards the end of that that film after uh, after well after stalin's died obviously very well very much worth a watch um if thoroughly you're stable in... and normal bloke it has to be commented not not in any means an raving psychopath amoral uh, immoral person i think I think sadistic paedophile is the uh, is the term that was used in the BBC documentary. He, he, as the head of the as the head of the KGB from from 1938 onwards, but always playing quite a large role in it, um, takes a major interest in the 
the fortunes of Dinamo Moscow. He basically attends every game. He's he's got a, he's got a, a footballing background. He played, um, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, as an amateur, um, and he comes into contact with a with a with a with the well with the Starostin brothers, who we'll talk about um, in, in a moment or so. But the, the the big conflict comes from between initially him and a uh, a man called Alexander Kosrev, who's the uh, a member of the Politburo, which is the central government cabinet in in Russia, and he's also the secretary of the Young Communist League, known as the Komsomol, which was kind of like the equivalent of the Hitler Youth um, in Germany, but went kind of a little bit older. Um, like this in membership went up until you were something like twenty-eight or something. Yeah, like rail card um, age. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That and, kind of um, young person. And Kosrev basically, I think, had a had a, had a deep dislike for for Beria for one thing, but also was 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 had a had a close relationship with Nikolai Starostin, who was one of three brothers, um, was immensely talented, was an immensely talented footballer, um, and it was that that led them to wanting to basically set up a rival club to Dinamo, um, which they felt represented the workers far more so than. Uh, than some of these other Moscow clubs who claim to represent the workers, but largely represented um, kind of quite controlling, uh, despotic elements of the Soviet regime. Particularly when, particularly when we're referring to this period in the in the late 1930s, which are uh, synonymous with the great purges and the show trials and the mass executions and the imprisonments in gulags and all the rest of it that. Um, the, the Stalin regime is famous for, and and the club that Starostin and Kosarev kind of come to to, to create is called Spartak Moscow. Uh, it named after the Thracian gladiator um, Spartacus, who kind of like fought for the freedom of slaves in ancient Rome. So I mean, th- there's an interesting kind of like subplot in that whole in that whole thing. This is not just a, a you know two people who are wanting to set up a football team there is a, a clear political element to it and even though the soviet regime in very similar ways to some of those fascist regimes was very controlling of large parts of of russia um the the football ground and the you know the pro the, the day out of going to the football ground was probably one of the few places where you could get away with some of the kind of like the comments that you can make on a you know, in the state the same way in the ground today, it's, it's where you can kind of behave slightly unlike you would perhaps in normal public. But uh, so, so I suppose it's that it was a, some to some extent a silent form of opposition against against the state. Um, but the relationship between Beria and Starostin uh, gradually turned sour. The Starostin brothers are fascinating, and it's Starostin as much as you've. You have the interaction, I think, with Starostin brothers of the people and the party stroke the state in that you've got, again, two elements of the state kind of using football. But in the Starostin brothers, you've got you know, not just representing football, but um, in played ice hockey as well. They are people who are more closely connected to the society than perhaps the party officials ever could be. And I just think it's it's a really interesting personal... I think there are a few cases when you're dealing with football and politics where you see personalities quite as strongly as you do in this case. I think it's very, very revealing 
to the whole kind of rest of the story because obviously every other communist state comes after the Soviet states do and that's the kind of fascinating setup here that it informs everything that's to come but it can all be viewed through this prism of the relationship effectively between three people yeah uh, yeah exactly um it's an interesting insight and we'll talk i mean we'll talk about hungary later who are probably the well the most the most successful kind of communist football side and 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 a team that we have talked about in the past we've done our 1954 world cup um one if you want to look back in our in our repertoire um so, uh, a bit a bit uh, in your own time uh, but yeah one of one of the ways that they that they come into contact is that spartak and dinamo kind of uh, strike up a clear rivalry um spartak perhaps in, in a similar way I, we keep making these links but to um uh, Matthias Sindler and some of his performances for the Austrian national team against the German state. Um, they they, de- they defeat Dinamo. They win the they win the cup and the league in one year. Um, and and heavily kind of heavily kind of annoy Beria in many senses. And there, and there was one occasion where uh, they that Spartak reduced play Dinamo. I think basically Beria, fearing that they were going to lose, pulled the game, um, and it left Dinamo playing basically on their own. In it in I think the one of the only games that Stalin ever attended in person, um, and they kicked it around, uh, did basically a training session, uh, and ended up playing for for about the whole half, which Stalin found most um, most enjoyable. Uh, somehow, having this is really the Red Square game that's on a carpet in Red Square, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, and and basically, Barrier is like finds out about it later and is furious at being upstaged by the whole thing and uh, as as the as the kind of like purges of the of the 1930s set in and beria takes his place as the head of the kgb from 38 onwards he he uses it as a as a time to kind of like stake out his revenge and kosrev is targeted he's uh, defined as a saboteur a bourgeois saboteur obviously because uh you know if you're going to make if you're going to make someone an enemy, you make them an enemy of the state and of the revolution and the principles that it in that it imbibes. Um, and he and he was executed. Um, the, the Starostins get uh, get slightly less of a uh, well get get away with um, with some of it, perhaps because, as you said, John, that they've got this this reputation as incredible sportsmen, not just within football, but uh, but all round sportsmen, and, and that gives them. A degree of immunity um but not enough to kind of not enough to protect them and particularly when uh when the war breaks out uh stalin kind of um having signed a, a peace pact with with hitler in 1939 and perhaps underestimating that hitler was always planning a, a kind of invasion in the east um it, it ends up being at war with the the soviet union from 1941 onwards and with the country kind of distracted uh beria takes his moment in 1942 to, to target the starostins um uh, and have them arrested um <laughs> they eventually i think pin them on um well it was an attempted plot to, to kind of assassinate stalin but there was no evidence found for that <laughs> and what they end up seemingly to accuse them of is playing football in a bourgeois way and, and then i think they're pinned for for kind of stealing kind of like football equipment and taking bribes or something like yeah. some kind of like made up kind of uh but it's accusation it, you look how petty it is and you go back to that 1939 
um, cup win for Spartak when they played Dynamo in the semi-final um, and beat them. And Barry just said, no, we've got to play it again. And just yeah. ordered the game replayed. Um, they still lost. He couldn't... This is the sort of intensely personal, petty nature of it set against this massive backdrop just rings all the way through. And as a result of those, you know, that distraction in 41, it's it's off to the gulag. For 10 years. Um yeah, exactly, and and this and this was my my earlier claim. I think kind of coming in, and we'll see we'll see another examples of, of these kind of personal uh, disputes that kind of get in the way of the potential to use football for a much more beneficial purpose. Um, perhaps had Stalin kind of you know realised this a bit more, or if Berrier had been a little kind of less of a prick, um, you know he might have been able to kind of. To, to, to get Sterist in on their side and you know create a great national team or what have you but um, it seems that some of these kind of like personal disputes seem to get in their way um, and th- and that, that that continues in the after war period so the Staristians do spend most most of the war in 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 prison I think they spend five of their ten years and then kind of sort of a bit out of nowhere Stalin's son Vasily who actually is a very keen football fan um and you can imagine quite untouchable well exactly um comes in and sort of uh, and basically goes into free starostin from the gulag and ha- had that been any other person barrier would have instantly intervened almost cert- you know almost certainly and and kind of dealt with it in the in a in a brutal way uh, one, one thing like vasily was like they they they, they, they he, he kept him in his apartment they shared a bed very wide bed a wide bed everyone together um you know the, he apparently sort of slept with a gun under his pillow fearing that there was this kind of like tension between himself and uh, and barrier and that something was going to happen um and, and that something did happen starostin would got kind of like famously drunk one of these nights because he was effectively under house arrest in vasily's home he went off to see his kind of like family and was uh, intercepted by barrier's kgb men i think this happens on more than one occasion because uh, vasily kind of intervenes on, on one on one at one point but um you know it, it kind of shows that you know one of the one of the one of the great sportsmen and footballers of their time is effectively embroiled in a tit-for-tat kind of blood feudy um style well not even a blood feud because it's just it's so petty um it it's just sort of incredible but it's you know you've, you've been away years of, a, of, of of an individual who um who is quite quite brilliant and, and his brothers on top of that and that's not to say there weren't others who went through probably far worse treatment they they were they got uh they probably got better treatment in the gulags than anyone else because of their footballing backgrounds um uh, yeah and uh, it, it wasn't until barrier's death in 53 that they were um sort of like completely free uh, uh, from from those from those experiences and the starostins then uh, nikolai went back to become the president of spartak and you know lived un- under relative relative freedom from you know under khrushchev and brezhnev in the, in the years that followed um but yeah, um, it's not to say though that there weren't other footballers who were subject to that kind of capricious whim. Um, you know, you've got the you did talk about the lack of opportunity, lack of seizing on the national team, um, and I think there's the 
it's something that I was this it was um, a podcast series about how Putin rose to power and it told the story about how he was quite unsure of himself in the early days of, of power and how um, there was a terrible incident with a nuclear submarine where um, a lot of the sailors were kind of trapped it was a huge he was refusing support from European countries and in a, he handled it so terribly and they tried to fix this by having a big press conference with all the mothers and family of the sailors on the stage um, and one of the mothers just kind of broke down about how you know this awful situation about you know her son was going to die and from the side of the screen um, you see a KGB person come on and just inject her in the neck she passes out and gets dragged off stage and the commentator talks about how this is an old Russian attitude it's an old Soviet attitude you're embarrassing us we can't be embarrassed and you look go back to football's example the 1952 they're playing Yugoslavia um, there's political tension there because although nominally um, communist as well Yugoslavia's got this nationalist bent uh, that's going on as well under Marshall Tito. Um, and the Soviet Union lose. And the majority of the players of the Soviet team are from CDKA Moscow, the Red Army team. They just disband the team when they get home. Just, you know, the team gets, well, you can't, you've embarrassed us. That can't happen anymore. And it's it's utterly bizarre to think that it's effectively like saying, you know, Liverpool had seven players in the team that got knocked out in you know the euros so therefore no liverpool doesn't exist anymore yeah yeah like like you say it's some some of this does feel so self-inflicted um you know you know a better a better investment in a in a, in a set of players that might have represented you really well as, as you say tito was one of the only countries in eastern europe that kind of was communist but tried to keep itself relatively free from stalinist and, and actively opposed stalin so you know that that was new that that in itself was an embarrassment so adding the kind of like defeat of them by the yugoslavs was was, a, was another kind of take on that and stalin has track record of this he, you know during his purges he killed thirty-five thousand red army officers um you know the first two years of the war went absolutely dreadfully and it, you know ends up with the battle of stalingrad with eight hundred thousand dying you know this is this is them shooting themselves in the foot um in in just drastically bad ways not to say that anyone else was immune from it. I mean, Yugoslavia's football in 1945 they dissolved. So you know, it's now a communist government. Tito's rising um, star in this. All the pre-war clubs are dissolved completely, um, and all of the organisers are dubbed enemies of the state by Tito. So effectively, just takes control of football by saying that anyone who was involved before is an enemy of the state. And it's actually an anti-fascist group that set up one of the most famous kind of clubs of the Yugoslav age of Red Star Belgrade. Um, but they have some really interesting suggestions in '45. Um, there's considered they might be called Lenin Belgrade. Um, Blue Star is mentioned. There's even some suggestion apparently that um, there was they were going to call name the team after Stalin. But that already the kind of nationalism that had come through meant that naming it after anybody who wasn't from kind of the Yugoslav states was ruled out immediately, and Red Star was taken to be a symbol to be separate. So you can see how everyone's got different designs on how football could work for them, and the self-inflicted wounds though they they carry on. Like you get into the fifties, and 
Um, there's the example of the very young, kind of up-and-coming 17-year-old footballer, Streltsov, um, who is effectively a peer of Pele. You know, he's, what, three years younger, I think, than Pele? Um, and still in Russia today, a back heel is known as a Streltsov. He, that's the level of intervention you have in here. But he gets caught up in the politics of the state again. He's another person who apparently enjoys the lifestyle, isn't is viewed with a bit of suspicion because he has a teddy boy haircut, which not a great idea to be mimicking uh, Western things. But you know, part of the change that comes with Khrushchev coming in and uh, Stalin, uh, Stalin's death, you've got this awareness of the wider world after the Second World War, even though there's this huge attempt to suppress it. And you've got this difficult figure in a superstar player who could shape their country's future and yet his sort of perceived playboy lifestyle means that there's a complaint that he has raped the daughter of a prominent party member um, for which he's arrested um, and it seems he's desperate to go to the 58 World Cup by all accounts and the suggestion seems to be that he's effectively told look just confess and then everything will be alright you can go to the World Cup it'll be fine and so he confesses and doesn't end up at the World Cup. Yep, I, I'd, I'd read a little bit further into just like some of the things that he was acute because he because he was it was supposedly it was supposedly quite sort of Western and kind of like liked a night out and had that kind of image which was kind of problematic for the Soviet regime. And, and Khrushchev was a bit of a hypocrite in certain in certain instances. You know, his when he, when he eventually kind of outmaneuvers Beria, um, uh, who who gets executed by the way, um, and then Malenkov, who was his other kind of like. Um, person again see death of Stalin for the kind of executed the, as a spy for capitalism right yeah, just real um, salt in the wounds but 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 also the, the point of the point of saying that was that Khrushchev comes to to power on the back of a uh, of a speech at the twentieth party contract uh, sorry conference known as known for de-Stalinization he is supposed to be the uh, the the opposite of this and a lot of the kind of like the revelations of what happened under Stalin come out um and yet he kind of like he 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 uses that when he needs it he he, he there is definitely a, 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 a reduction in terror there are political prisoners who are freed strelts off one of them um, mm. fr- from the gulags uh, in in vast numbers but equally um there's still a fear that uh western values could undermine his regime and there's still a desire to keep people in power who are going to be supportive of him one of these as you say is Yekaterina Fertzeva who is the female um, and only a female member of the Politburo Streltsov you know for all that he did wrong um, on his on his deathbed to his um, to his wife you know pleaded you know said that, that there was i never i never did this 12 witnesses who were at the scene all said all claimed to say under oath that nothing had happened he he was rumored to have said and this was said to someone and i think possibly the, the this sort of like i mean it's not petty because you shouldn't say something like this but he was apparently very very drunk and foot saver uh, as in the mother had got into some sort of conversation or someone else had got into a conversation with him and he'd said something like I think I think it was proposed that he would he would marry her her daughter and he'd said something like I would never marry that monkey or I would never I'd rather be hanged than marry such a girl and wh- whether there's whether that's true or not I don't know but it feels like there what there wasn't the evidence that 
he no. committed he, he committed rape there was rumors that he'd had uh, that he'd had sexual relations and that something may have happened and he may have said something like that but in in a similar way to the sort of like the personal nature of it this is a high-ranking politburo member who has been probably deeply offended by that and what do you do in that situation in a communist soviet state when you go to your top man and say i am a member of your politburo something needs to be done about this and you know once 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 you upset the kind of the the top dogs um the the way that they seem to deal with it is relatively brutally and interestingly this is a player who also is rumored to before CDKA were uh, disbanded as a youth player, refused to play for them. Um, after that, had refused to play for Dynamo. So was lacking allies, was lacking the protection um, of anybody else. And so is particularly vulnerable. Um, and again, played out in that in that personality way. Um, he does obviously get out after time served and keeps playing, although um, clearly kind of things have taken their toll. Uh, he seems to be considered to be still a great kind of intelligent player, have a football intelligence, but physically isn't the same. But he does play for, is it Torpedo Moscow, I think? And he wins the league with them in 64 or 65, I think. So he's kind yeah. of, his career carries on, but he never represents um, the Soviet Union again. No, and, and you know this. This was someone, as you said, in terms of his quality, scored a, scored a hat trick on his on his Soviet Union debut against Sweden in a six nil win. Um, you know that he was called the Russian Pele is was not, um, you know, you know, was was testament to his potential as a, as a player, which never kind of never kind of got um, fulfilled. Um, and, and and you know it's, it's a. It's obviously a very sad thing that that, that, that sort of thing doesn't happen. Um, but I, I mean, it, the USSR is not the only place where this is uh, where this has taken place. We've touched on Yugoslavia in Eastern Europe. The ob- the obvious place to talk about is Hungary, um, because I mean, if, if there's if there's a place that gets football right, um, Hungary is certainly that place, and it's got the the it's got the backlog of similar things. That are happening in the Soviet Union. The difference being that it's a satellite state, effectively controlled by uh, a puppet leader, if you like, called Mateusz Rakosi, who is a, a Stalinist um, in in the sort of like post-war period, and imposes a pretty dictatorial-style regime. He, uh, like like Stalin before him, um, uses show trials to get forced confessions of his of his opponents. He um, uh, I, I think I'm. I think I'm right in saying that, that Hungary had something like five percent of its population uh, in political prisons. Um, that that was part of this kind of attempt to control things. But at the same time, there was an ability with a team that was so great, like Hungary, in I suppose a similar way to Mussolini in in, in Italy in the 30s, to disguise or dis- or detract from the kind of the realities of the regime um and i I think it's i think it's not an unrealistic thing to say or or a completely over top over the top thing to say that it probably did placate elements of the hungry the hungarian population but also when it didn't go right had the ability to 
in, inspire some forms of process. But I mean, before before we say that, it's, it's, it's worth talking about just how good this team was. Um, there are millions of places where you can read about the the 50s team so we won't kind of uh, we don't profess to be experts on this but there's plenty of examples of how how good they were they obviously first of all play England in what's sort of referred to as the the match of the century in uh, in 1953 in November um, at a time where um, where Rikosi's kind of just about losing his power just as Stalin is I think Stalin has just died, mm. um, and they are playing in front of a hundred thousand. The England team are widely recognised as the world's best, you know, the home of football as we've talked about. But the this new Hungarian team had gone thirty-two games undefeated. Um, in the run-up to the game, one of the English footballers had apparently talked of Pushkas as some. Uh, I think he he was quoted as saying, "Look at that little fat chap. We'll mm. murder this lot." Uh, within 45 seconds, Hideg Guti had scored his goal, and after 35 shots on target compared to England's five, they came out as 6-3 winners, which is probably not as flattering as it should have been, um, given the sort of new fluid playing formation that Gustav Sebes had brought in with a sort of kind of 4-2-4, which had really not been seen again uh, before, sorry, um, the sort of birth of, of, the, of total football whilst England uh, mired in the in the kind of uh, the backward rigidity of its um, kind of individualism, um, just got outpassed and outthought and outplayed. And it wasn't, and it wouldn't be the only time that they that they were to that they were to lose to Hungary. The, the repeat repeat of the fixture back in Hungary uh, a year or so later yep. uh, is England's to this day biggest biggest loss. They lost seven one in that game, and so began a kind of like decline in English football for probably the next decade until uh, until the, the 66 world cup yeah and it, it's really interesting to this was the interesting point so the kind of the marvelous magyars team as they're dubbed here and this kind of incredible side which is full of just superb players who are you know the best of their generation they don't ever have the success um they make it to the world cup final in 54 um, and they lose 3-2 to West Germany, um, significant for the fact that it's West Germany, but also for the fact that it brings people out onto the streets in Hungary as well in protest, in a foreshadowing of what's to happen to Hungary in the 1950s in particular, and which would kind of derail this sense of the Hungarians remaining a constant power, because they're kind of connected, aren't they, to the, um, you're going to pronounce better, Imran... Imre Nagy. Imre Naj, I think. Naj. I had, a, yeah. I had a maths teacher called Mr. Naj. Naj, okay. Um, but that kind of new course thing that Naj is setting up and the football team is kind of associated and in the minds of the people kind of part of that direction. And it's 1956 that the kind of revolt against Soviet control happens. And as it doesn't succeed... Um, and you have increased Soviet control and something of the, not the team as it is, but something of the ferment that made that team, that brought that team together and allowed it to happen. Odd movements in Hungary, I think, that football gets bound up again in. It's sort of, it is more patriotic, it is more nationalistic. And yet, it seems to that when the Soviets come in and kind of crush the resistance that's forming to their to their influence 
the next generation of footballers don't emerge at all for Hungary. You know, the, they disappear in the 60s and 70s. And it's hard not to see that as a product of that clamp down of Soviet control. I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I, I think it's, it's worth talking about the kind of the reaction to the defeat um, in, in the, in the, in the cup in the world cup final um Mikosi kind of basically blames the defeat on uh on the goalkeeper um uh, a man called grosic what's his first name kind of julia julia grosic i think um and the team on their on their return are basically uh, they're coming back in a, on a, in a, over ground on the train um obvi- obviously <laughs> not, not in the best mood not, yeah, uh, not in the best mood, and uh, they are basically intercepted by the by the by the state secret police. Um, they are invited. Uh, it's probably the uh, putting it putting it differently to how it was um, uh, to a to a state dinner the following the following day, and uh, they're basically placed under house arrest. And Grosich is kind of like targeted a little bit as a. Um, as as the person at fault for it he's accused of spying and espionage for which others were hanged and actually it was kind of the event the proceedings against him eventually stopped and it wasn't it wasn't carried through perhaps partly because Naj had come into power to so like it's a bit confusing Rikosi remains kind of uh in in some degree of power, but Naj for a two-year period is is the prime minister. So perhaps that's the reason he's he's saved from further kind of uh, wrongdoing. But um, with with Naj's fall in '55, that kind of leads to um, the the Soviet invasion in the following year. And, and from that point, as you say, John, the the team really never never recoups. But I mean, you 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 do say that they're they're unsuccessful. They're unsuccessful in the sense that they don't win the World Cup. Yeah. That is the only international game that they lose in their in their entire um, in their entire time um, as, as an international team, which I mean is is the making of of how we judge football teams, sadly. But um, it's it's a difficult kind of one to to say that you know they were failures um, in that sense. But again, that's that's how the communist state to some degree saw it. Um, they they hadn't they hadn't quite lived up to the to to what they'd hoped they would be. Yeah, and I, it's interesting that football doesn't seem to ever have the trust of people in these kind of political extremes, and I think that seems to be particularly in the history of, of the last country that we'll come to. Really, is East Germany, um, where East Germany not particularly renowned as a football powerhouse at any point in its history. Um, you know the the very interesting setup that you have football running in those regions. It's not a surprise that football continues. But what is interesting is that the East German state becomes, in sporting sense, very keen to be seen as successful internationally. But their focus is overwhelmingly on the Olympics. Um, there's very little um, kind of talent going towards East German football. And the early seventies, the kind of uh, the coach of the team is asked, um, you know, <laughs> where are all the tall players? You know, why are you? Why is this such a short team? Um, and his answer is really simply just, well, all the tall players are rowers. The state directs people away from football 
towards Olympic sports purely because the volume opportunity to win gold medals and to have glory for the state is higher. You can only win one football tournament, one gold medal. And East Germany seems to take on that Hungary point of the only game they lost still marks them out as a failure. Yeah, they didn't win. They, they lost to a capitalist country. Yet with the Olympics, it doesn't matter if one person fails because multiple people can succeed. And it's kind of marked by the fact that football's quite low-key in East Germany. But it's no less fascinating what happens. Because over and over again, you, you don't really get any profile for East German football on the international stage until you get to the 70 World, uh, 74 World Cup where East and West Germany are drawn against each other. Which, I mean, if there's ever evidence that draws aren't rigged, it's surely that. Because who in their right mind would want that game to happen? Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a it's the it's a microcosm of the of the Cold War, um, and kind of like a battle over the validity of each ideology, isn't it? You know, you've got um, it, it, like Germany. Germany plays that out more opaquely than any other country because of because of the the way that the country is split, because of the fact that Berlin is split in the same way between east and west uh a wall obviously separating uh both sides from 1961 um you know hertha berlin supporters finding themselves supporting their club uh in in one instance and then finding themselves on the east of the wall and unable to uh to hear their team or, or go and visit their team scoring you know there, there's there's no more kind of more definite divide um that, than that so this kind of like moment where both sides meet within the world cup as a potential um kind of like point scoring uh, element to it you know at a time uh, when the cold war is still going admittedly not in its height you're you're, you're entering a period no. of, of detente during the 1970s which probably what is why it doesn't get quite the um i don't know quite the the I don't know what the word I'm looking for is um, quite the significance that it that it might that it might do had it been say in the 1950s or the 1960s, um, but it, it it goes ahead nonetheless. Um, Honecker and who who is the kind of like uh, state leader in in East Germany and Eric Milker, who's the head of the of the Stasi, which is the German equivalent of the Cheka, the secret police, um, kind of. Uh, take take it relatively seriously and they ordered something like 1500 communist party members um into west germany for for the game to to represent east germany you know at a time where there was really virtually no crossover um and it was sort of like potential for them to cause a bit of trouble in the game although that there, there wasn't any in the end um that the east germans came out victorious with a one nil victory and you know there was, it was i suppose some kind of rapturous sort of uh celebrations from from Honecker's regime um they won the group actually it was the two germanys chile and australia and it was east germany that won the group um west germany came second although they would obviously go on to win the whole tournament um but really interesting that this, i mean australia and chile perhaps not at that point peak powers um at all but fascinating that it was east germany that won the group yeah, it's, I suppose it, I suppose it is, but um, this is one of those those other points. I think now that it's worth us doing a bit of a comparison between the kind of like the fascist control of football and the, and the communist control because they win that game, and yet 
the general reaction in East Germany, unlike, say, um, the kind of the Spanish victory of the, of the Soviet Union in the 60s and the rise of Madrid as a kind of like state funded um, support for Franco, which probably solidifies this position, solidifies Spanish nationalism to some degree. This, perhaps because of the, well, it was because of the, the place where, it, where it's taking place, um, where there is a kind of, there is an, int- there's certainly an intended uh, effort from both the West and the East to kind of infiltrate both sides with propaganda of either side. Now, I think by the 1970s, there's a growing awareness of what life is like in the East compared to the West. And the overuse of propaganda within the Eastern state leads many to kind of, not all, but many to kind of think that, do you know what, this is this is just all part of some massive propaganda yeah. thing that some people actually turned against the state and and saw through it. Um, and I don't and I don't think that the fascist states that really happened so obviously. Um, it's so difficult because you've got that direct comparison and that you, you know between seventy three and ninety one there are seventeen meetings in European competition between East German and West German clubs. You are looking at people having every year an example of East versus West in football. Um, 12 of those 17 won by West German teams. You know, you've got the oddity of the fact that they couldn't work out how you would deal with railways that travelled around segregated Berlin. So they just went, well, you deal with the ones that go above ground, you will deal with the ones that go below ground, even though you're crossing zones as you do it. It's it, Everyone, I think, had this ability to see the absurdity in East and West Berlin in a way yeah. that it's harder to see when you've got a totalitarian state elsewhere because East, East Berlin wasn't really part of a totalitarian state because it, it kind of overlapped in so many kind of cultural and physical ways with a capitalist state next door. Yeah, indeed. I, I suppose the other thing that it has, I mean, it, this doesn't happen until 1985 or 86, but uh, the the introduction of glasnost um which is the soviet policy um under mikhail gorbachev which basically is is probably the moment that brings communism to an end across uh, well in the soviet union and within europe it's more complex than that obviously but it's is a policy that brings great openness and transparency to those regimes it allows opposition newspapers to kind of report different views and it um allows access to foreign radios and news reports and all of those kind of things so the the ability of people to kind of get a a, a more balanced kind of version of what's going on perhaps is the reason why it uh it no longer becomes an effective kind of propaganda tool um as perhaps it was earlier not to say though that east germany is a bed of roses so to kind of just run a few examples and for the anniversary of the fall of the berlin wall uh, last year we did um, an episode that was all about East German football and particularly kind of the progression of the war. So that episode exists to to look at as well. Um, but just some highlights of it to give you the sense that this is the same subject to often the same petty moments as well. Um, so you mentioned Eric Milke, um, who as kind of head of the secret police, there were two dynamos, the Dynamo Dresden um, and Dynamo Berlin. Uh, Dresden had won three league championships um, from 76 to 79. 
uh, at the end of the season, uh, he apparently walked into the dressing room and told them, right, now it's Berlin's turn. Berlin would then win the next 10 successive league titles. You would instantly see how utterly terrifying a state that is to be in. But still, you've got so many examples, and that terrifying state moment, players are defecting, much as East German players are trying to escape. Um, In 1979, um, Dynamo have a friendly against Kaiserslautern. Um, One of the players, Agendorf, defects, he escapes, and stays in the West. A couple of years later, the brakes on his car fail, and he's killed in a car crash. Um, You've players more successfully defecting but as late as 1986 there's a player called Frank Lippmann who defects and successfully plays a little bit doesn't really find his standard and retires quite soon after but even into that late 80s period when you're talking about the way that communism's grip on societies is slipping you've got um, the sports minister Manfred Iwald says that sport is not a private amusement it is a social and political education and players like Matthias Sammer um, you know, makes his name in the 90s. But as a youngster, he's playing with um, Dynamo Dresden. And he is you know, a generational talent. Clearly, there's a lot of focus on how good he is. And for the, um, for the team, there's a little bit too much focus. So when officials come around and hang the team new boots, he's given boots that are massively too big. And he insists that that was deliberate. That was a form of punishment for him standing out, being too individualistic, taking away from the whole, um, which is, you know, you consider the death throes of kind of communist control, and yet those still petty amusements and petty whims of state officials seem to just permeate everything about how communist states dealt with football. And right at the end with Sammy, you've still got those tiny, tiny things that just so, this odd sense of not using football and the kind of final point i want to make is that we don't have a lot of communist states left in the world now but we have one very obvious well in name at least communist state in china who again don't seem particularly keen on using football that well there may well be a bid for a world cup at some point coming soon that this point they were down to host the 2022 revised format club world cup of 24 teams but Again, it's not the kind of high, super high profile that you've got. And if anything, China's rowing back on football. We had that crazy period of you know, huge wages being offered to 10 players to the Chinese league. But that's been stamped down on by the state, who seem to see that as individuals marking themselves out with their, their wealth, effectively, in a way that's detrimental to the state. So you've all sorts of restrictions that come in now. Um, and what do they put? They put put that kind of like huge. They, didn't they have to match it one hundred percent taxation for the price of the yeah. player, or something like that, and for the wages that? as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you sort of um, <laughs> the general secretary of the Chinese FA made a statement that um, they wanted a, this is what they wanted for the football uh, of China, basically to be for the league more dynamic in terms of commercial and esports we're looking at the salary cap to restrict foreign players that's really interesting that they're actually talking about the commercialization of football within society rather than it serving any kind of state function and perhaps that's a product of the fact that china's more of a a kind of almost a state monopoly than it is a communist country at this point um 
But I don't know. I mean, you look at the the national team. They had a target, a ten year plan, effectively, um, that by twenty twenty they'd be in the top seventy um, of national teams. As we're talking, they're seventy six. For a state, well, they're almost there, John. For a state that has that kind of power, I just wonder whether what we've been it's talking not, It's not very optimistic in terms of communist targets. The communists like to have like high targets. That's yeah, generally 70th. their thing. Because they can you, you can use it as a as a means to kind of like oust some of your opposition who fail to do it. But um yeah, that is remarkably unambitious, isn't it? Yeah. It's, um, it, I wonder if the whole <laughs> I wonder if they, the communist kind of um, the communist model will just never be able to produce football because it just almost ideologically and perhaps even culturally can't tolerate football as a sport. I don't know, but it would seem to be playing out that way. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't see any of the major footballing nations turning communist anytime soon to 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 turn that around. So. Um, we probably might never know the full end of that story. Yeah, yeah. It's well, assuming as we are that communism is on its way out of um, to become a, a part of history rather than a part of the future. But what is interesting is what will be the next parts of this series on political extremism. And we've dealt with those state interventions, and while states are unlikely to turn uh, to communism and hopefully to fascism, but that seems to still linger. The effects of how football was treated by those regimes have lingered quite long in the imaginations of supporters in particular. And it's often these political extremes that have informed everything from hooliganism to club cultures. And in the next part of this series, we're going to look at the clubs um, across the spectrum and how these kind of ideologies still permeate football across many different nations in a lot of different ways. But that's next time. And I think that's everything for this week's podcast. So it just remains for me to say thank you for listening. Um, if you want to get in touch, there's two ways to do it. Thegameoffooty at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at the Game of Footy. But that's it. Thank you very much to Insight to Alan. Thanks, John. And thanks everyone for listening. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a safe and uh, reasonable lockdown if you're able to. And uh, for now, as you were. Mm-hmm.